Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I showed up this morning. There's more to that sentence. Uh, 
I showed up this morning loaded for bear, and there's really no way that I'm going to get through everything that I've got prepared in front of me. So you would think that at this moment I would not kill any time, and yet I'm going to. I just wanted to take a personal moment and want to do this over the internet to say thank you to everybody who contributed, everybody who blessed me for my birthday. I am very, very grateful. I'm a very, very fortunate guy. The fact that I am surrounded by friends and the fact that people are (coughs) kind and generous to me. There is more brand new computing power in my very near future because I got a couple of good Apple cards and uh, you know If you know anything about me, you know I'm a Mac guy. And uh, I will use those cards and get myself some significant new computing power. So thank you all very much for your kindness. We are in Revelation chapter 17 this morning. By the way, for those of you who are keeping track of the calendar... Tonight at sundown is the beginning of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And it will go until Tuesday night at sundown. Somewhere in the midst of Rosh Hashanah, there will be a last trump. And if that is the last trump that Paul was referring to, then every year around this time, I become a little anxious, a little hopeful. And then by Wednesday, I'm deeply disappointed. (laughs) But the very fact, and we're really not going to teach on this this morning, but the very fact that Jesus, in his incarnation, when he was here on the planet, he perfectly fulfilled the first four of the seven feasts that were assigned to Israel. And he accomplished them perfectly in order each one of them successively on time in order. That's a pretty remarkable event. And then if you look at the Jewish calendar, there is that period of summer, and then there are some fall feasts. I expect him to satisfy those in the same manner when he comes back. And that all begins with the Feast of Trumpets. And so that's happening right now. And uh, I'm always hopeful every single year that maybe this will be the year Jesus will come back and get us. And if not, I'm glad that I'm surrounded by friends. Everybody at Revelation 17 now? Let's read the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk a lot this morning and for the next couple of weeks about Babylon. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet 
and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and he is not and he will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They have one purpose, and they give their power and their authority to the beast. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose, by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God should be fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Whenever we get to chapter 18 someday, it will continue that theme of Babylon, lamenting over Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, the declaration that Babylon has fallen Babylon looms very large here in the book of Revelation. In fact, Babylon is mentioned, if you want to start counting, 
280 times in the Bible. And it is my intention this morning to look at all 280 re- No. No. But it's one of the most notable enemies of Israel. The Old Testament has a lot to say about Babylon. And it's one of the most pervasive enemies of the people of the earth, as you see declared here in Revelation. Because Babylon has this ongoing political and historic aspect to its existence, but it also has a very serious ongoing religious aspect to it. So we're going to start by looking at the historic aspect of Babylon. Babylon shows up right away in the Bible. You only get 10 chapters into the book of Genesis before you're introduced to the rebellion that's going on in Babylon. So start by turning to Genesis chapter 10. We're going to read Genesis 10 and some of Genesis 11 just to get some sense of why and how Babylon came to be in the first place. Genesis 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 7. This is one of the genealogies breaking down the various descendants of Noah. In verse 7, we read that one of Noah's sons had a son, Cush. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. In other words... Moses, who most probably is the writer of this part of the book of Genesis, pointed out that even in his day, there was still a phrase that people would use, like Nimrod, the great hunter of the Lord. That's how great the reputation of Nimrod was. Hang on to that name, because before we're done here this morning, we're going to return to a little bit of the history of Nimrod and why he is significant. Verse 10 And the beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of the kingdom that was established by Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Today, it's an app to teach you other languages. (laughs) Because the history of Babel is that God did confuse the languages of the people. But that is also the beginning of the establishment of what we know as Babylon. So that gives us some idea what area of the planet we're talking about when we're reading about Babel here. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, which, by the way, I, I, I pronounce it Babel because we've all just always said it that way. Babel is probably the proper pronunciation of it. I will just continue mispronouncing it. Along with Babel, there was Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria. Okay, now we really know we're talking about the Middle East. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ur and Kalah and resin between Nineveh and Kalah. 
That is the great city. Okay, we're, we're in chapter 10 of the book of Genesis, and we're reading that Nimrod was responsible for establishing Nineveh. Why does Nineveh loom large in our collective conscious? It's because that's where God sent Jonah in order to get them to repent before God. Why was it necessary that they repent? Because God used Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, to punish the northern tribes of Israel. So God is laying out all the groundwork here for what he already knows he's going to do among a people group who aren't even established yet. That's how sovereign our God is. Go to Genesis 11 now. At that time, the whole earth used the same language. That makes sense because the eight people on the boat would have used the same language. And so then they would have continued using that language as a consequence as people continued to populate the earth and continued to grow in their rebellion against God. They decided to show themselves in their arrogance and their pride that they were their own gods, that they would make up their own mind and do what they wanted to do. And therefore, God had to squash that rebellion. The whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used the bricks for stone and they used tar for the mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, a reputation. Let's make sure that anybody else on the planet knows that we're the great ones. How early in the book of Genesis, do we see that often repeated sin of pride showing up? Human pride. As soon as there was a fall, human pride became the chief sinful rebellion between human beings and God. And here they're doing it collectively as a group because there's power in numbers and they all speak the same language and they're going to establish a city for themselves. They're going to build a tower which they say the top of it is going to be higher than any tower ever built anywhere. In fact, it's going to reach all the way into heaven. And so they said, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So come let us go down, which, by the way, the plurality of God there fascinates me. The same way as at the beginning of the book of Genesis, we read God saying, let us create man in our image. You see that early Trinitarian language right away in the book of Genesis. Here's God again speaking of himself in that plural form. Let us go down and let us confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. 
And therefore, its name was called Babel. Do you know what the word Babel means? Confusion. That's exactly what it is. God confused their languages there ever since it's been known as Babel confusion. The name Babylon comes from that same root. It is the confusion that has taken over the whole planet. We'll continue building on that theme. You just need to know that the very essence of human beings getting together and rebelling against God brings about God's ire so that he confuses them in order to stop their behavior against him. That, again, is a very sovereign God. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city, and therefore its name was called Babel, or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Various languages on the planet exist because God, who is in charge of language, God who gave men language so that he could communicate with men, that God scattered people by scattering their languages, and that's why there are scattered languages on the planet today, which is why I find it humorous that the app that allows people to talk to each other in other languages is called Babel, confusion, because nothing ever changes. Even today in the 21st century, we're still trying to communicate our rebellions to each other, and we're doing it through Babel. Just thought I'd mention that. Okay, so now go back to the book of Revelation. Now that we know that Babel was the beginning of Babylon, Babylon, the historic nation then, that grew out of that area of the world, continues to be an enemy to the people of God, to the people of Israel. So it's no big surprise when we get to the book of Revelation and we see the name Babylon used as enemies against those whose names were actually written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. We, the church, we, the Christians, have always had opposition from the world And what we're going to discover is the reason that the world opposes us is because the world continues in everything that Babylon represents. Babylon has always been opposed to the activity of God. Starting all the way back in 2 Kings, I'm just going to read a few historic Old Testament verses to give you some sense of the conflict between Israel and Babylon. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cuthah and from Avah and from Hamath and from Sephrovaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. Okay, what that's about is, remember a moment ago I mentioned that Nimrod established Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Assyria is the nation that God used in order to punish the northern tribes of Israel for their continual idol worship 
and therefore God brought Assyria down on them. So God had kept Assyria intact, even sending them the prophet Jonah to keep them intact so that God could use them in order to punish his people, the northern ten tribes of Israel. And part of that invasion of the northern tribes included Assyria planting their own people in the land that God had historically promised to Abraham and to Israel. It was now being occupied by the enemies of Israel and in amongst those people the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon. That's one of the early references to Babylon in the Bible. The first time you meet Babylon you find them taking over the land that God has given to his people. Chapter 20 of 2 Kings says, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, these men that you've just met with, what did they say? Where have they come from? Why did they come to you? And Hezekiah said they came from a far country, from Babylon. 2 Kings 20 verse 17, Isaiah responds to him and says, behold, the days are coming when everything that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this very day is going to be carried away to Babylon, and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Babylon looms very large in the northern and the southern tribes And then here is Isaiah predicting that even the wealth of the temple and the wealth of the kings of Israel, when you think about Solomonic wealth, we're talking about a lot of wealth, that eventually all of that collectively is going to end up in Babylon. 2 Kings 24, starting at verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem, and the city came under siege. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and all his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of God. If you want to know what happened to all the furniture and all the gold in the temple in Jerusalem, if you want to know where all that went, it went to Babylon. And then it is pointed out that all of that occurred just as the Lord had said, the same way that Isaiah went to the king and said, don't be showing these people what you've got. I need to emphasize for a moment, all the things that belonged in the temple of God had been sanctified. They had been set apart from any common use and could only be used in the worship of God. They had been dedicated to the worship of God. They had had blood spilled on them, therefore they had been sanctified, made holy, made separate. They couldn't be used for any human, everyday, regular, common use. 
This was stuff that belonged to God, and God knew it belonged to him, and now it is in the hands of the enemies of God. Hold on to that for just a moment, because God is going to avenge himself based on the fact that the king of Babylon has taken the furniture that God himself has sanctified to himself. 2 Chronicles 36.5 says this, Jehoiakim, the king we were just talking about, was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his own temple in Babylon. That's a really bad idea. I'm just going to go on record as saying that's a really bad idea. He took things out of the house of the Lord that were dedicated to the Lord, that belonged to the Lord God, that belonged to Yahweh, and he set them up in his own temple in Babylon. Second Chronicles 36, 18, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Now, you know the history by now. I hope you know the history of Judah and Israel and their dealings with the succession of kingdoms there in the Middle East that ever conquered them and ruled over them. Judah was in bondage in Babylon for how long? 70. Judah was actually in bondage in Babylon for 70 years, exactly, again, the way it was foretold by Jeremiah. God predicted in advance through Isaiah that all of the wealth of Israel, all the wealth of the temple and of the king's house was going to end up in Babylon. And then God, through Jeremiah, predicted exactly how long the people of Judah were going to be in Babylon. Jeremiah 25:11 says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity. And the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon, the Chaldeans are the people living in Babylon. And I will punish the whole land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. Jeremiah 28, 2 tells us, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried it to Babylon. I am also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Okay, so that's the prophecy that Daniel was reading, and that's how he understood, since he was in Babylon, that Judah was going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And that's when he prayed to the angel, and the angel said, not only 70 years, but I'm going to tell you the next 77s. And that's where we get the prophecies that include the 10-nation, 10 toed kingdoms. All of that stems from the fact that Daniel was praying to God for this revelation because it had been 70 years that Judah had been in Babylon. 
And then in the Old Testament, this will just help you understand how to read your Old Testament. When you get to the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, that's the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and the city walls because God kept his word yet again. Check God out. Look at his history. He actually did exactly what he said he was going to do. He said in advance that it would be 70 years. At the end of 70 years, he did exactly what he said he was going to do, brought the children back, reestablished the city of Jerusalem, reestablished the temple again, and brought back all the items that Nebuchadnezzar had taken. Okay, how did that happen? Well, this is a wonderful story. You've probably heard the phrase at some point, handwriting on the wall. Whenever you want to say that somebody has understood something really obvious, it's like, well, he read the handwriting on the wall. Do you know the story of the handwriting on the wall? Because it's not handwriting, it's a hand that's writing. Because Babylon did fall, and it fell to the Medo-Persians. And the night that the Medo-Persians were coming under the wall of Babylon and ready to conquer that city... The king was having a feast with all of his people and showing off, and he decided to bring in the vessels that had been sanctified to God so that he could drink his wine to his gods out of the vessels that belonged to Yahweh. And suddenly, a hand appears. There's whitewashed walls, and there's all these torches in the walls lighting the walls, and a hand appears and writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. That word Eupharsin comes from Persian. The Persians are coming. It is interpreted, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. And that very night, Babylon did indeed fall. And it fell to the Medes and the Persians exactly like God said he was going to do. And God announced it by actually writing it down. Pretty amazing stuff. As a result, the king of Persia says, yeah, you all can go back and rebuild your temple. You can, yeah, okay. So Daniel's story from inside Babylon has Nebuchadnezzar erecting a statue to himself and then insisting that everybody has to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, which foreshadows what we've been reading in the book of Revelation about the beast building an image and everybody has to take his mark on their right hand or their forehead and they have to bow down and worship that beast or else they're going to die. I'm going to keep moving fast. Turn to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13 is the oracle against Babylon. And this is just fascinating. I don't want you to miss this because I'm going to read Isaiah 13 and 14 to you so that you can hear the language that God uses because right in the midst of declaring judgment against Babylon and against the king of Babylon, God talks right past the king and talks to Satan himself because Satan is the inspiration. Satan is the one who is driving that king who is enemy against the people of Israel. In other words, ever since Babel, ever since God confused their languages, 
all the way to what we just read out of Revelation 17. You never see God losing control. Instead, what you see is him moving peoples and nations like checkers in order to accomplish his ultimate will. And you see this most expressly when you read God speaking to Babylon, who are under the influence of Satan himself, and God is still completely in control. Here's what it says. Isaiah 13, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave your arms that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones, and I have called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of a tumult on the mountains, like that of many people, a sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. Does that sound familiar? Just last week we read that the false prophet and Satan himself, the dragon, and the beast were all going to send forth spirits to collect the kings of all the nations to come to the battle of the Lord that we know is Armageddon. It's the same thing that's being predicted here all the way back in Isaiah. The nations are going to be gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering an army for the battle. And they will be coming from a far country and from the farthest horizons. And the Lord and his instruments of, di- of indignation will destroy the whole land. Wail. This is how I know that it's talking about the same thing as Revelation. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord, that language consistently is always the time of God's judgment, God's fury and wrath on the planet. So what happens before the day of the Lord? God collects all the kings and all the armies and calls them to the Armageddon, which is called the war of God because God himself is going to engage the battle and is going to wipe out all his enemies and send his son back, who we just read in Revelation, is designated as king of kings and lord of lords. And that's predicted all the way back here in Isaiah. This is a God who knows what he's doing. That's all I'm trying to say to you. Even if you don't remember the details, even if you walk out today and remember nothing but uh, Babylon, even if that's all you get out of this morning, remember that this is all evidence that the God we worship is utterly and completely in control of world history. And you can trust a God like that. You can trust your eternal, ever-living, never-dying soul to a God who can do stuff like this. All the armies, all the enemies, all the rebels of planet Earth are going to be gathered together for his war, and they're going to cry because of it. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. And they will writhe like women in labor. And they will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Which, by the way, I think is the inspiration. If you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, at the very end, there are the melting faces that are on fire. I think that's where Steven Spielberg got it. Spielberg, good Jewish name there. Just thought I'd point it out. Okay. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It is cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners 
from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Does that sound familiar? We see it in the book of Revelation. These are the signs in the heavens that occur just before the return of Christ. And thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud." And abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. And I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. And I will make mankind scarcer than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I shall make the heavens tremble. And the heavens will be shaken from its place. And the earth will be shaken from its place. At the fury of the Lord of hosts in that day of his burning anger. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each one will flee to his own land. And anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword and their little ones will also be dashed into pieces before their eyes and their houses will be plundered and their wives will be ravaged. Behold, I am going to stir up And now the prediction of the Medes. So God begins the prophecy by talking about the day of the Lord and the ultimate destruction that he's going to bring on the planet. And in the midst of that, talks about the fact that he's going to bring the Medes and the Persians down on Babylon, exactly like he did in 539 BC. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children and Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms. The glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will the shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, and ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there, and hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will come soon. And her days will not be prolonged. Okay, so God said that once Babylon fell, it was never going to be established again. It was just going to be wild animals that lived in that area. Can you go right now and buy an airplane ticket to go to Babylon? No. No, why not? It doesn't exist. doesn't exist. Why doesn't it exist? Because God said so. Again, just evidence that the word of God continues to prove itself true in human history. Does anybody here remember Saddam Hussein? Or as George Bush would call him, Saddam. Saddam Hussein actually stamped coins. On one side, there was the image of his profile, and behind that, the image of the profile of Nebuchadnezzar. And on the other side was Babylon. He was determined to reestablish Babylon as the great city there in Iraq, and he couldn't. Why? Because the Bible said so. Because the Bible said so. Because God said so. Because God stopped him. He ended up living In in a hole. 
They had to go dig him up. And he fancied himself to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't get to be the new Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because it's not time yet. That spirit is coming. That spirit of evil that is that has driven these seven kingdoms that have ever ruled over Israel. That spirit will live again. But just like we read in the book of Revelation, that is the spirit that was and is not in John's time and will come again. And that's why the kings of the earth, no matter how hard they try to do anything that God has not said they can do, no matter how much effort they put into it, they can't do it. Because God is God, and they're just human beings. Isaiah 14, we got to keep going. Because this is the place now where, in taunting the king of Babylon, now that God has already said, you're going to fall to the Medes and the Persians, now he's going to actually talk right past the king and talk to Lucifer himself. Fascinating. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and when he will again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob, and the peoples will take them along and bring them back to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive. And they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives them rest from all their pain and turmoil and harsh services in which you have been enslaved. That you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and you will say how the oppressor has ceased. How the fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury and unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is finally at rest and quiet, and they break forth into shouts of joy. Okay, has Israel been reestablished in its land yet? No, then we'd have to say this is prophetic. Is the whole earth quiet and at peace right now? No. We'd have to say, no, well, then this is prophetic. Which, by the way, in just the previous chapter, God said it's going to be 70 years and it's going to be um, the Medes and the Persians that are going to take over Babylon. And that all happened. Which means what we're reading right now is equally going to happen based on the evidence that God has already shown you in human history. You understand me? Yes. Am I boring anybody? Okay. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. And they break forth into shouts of joy, and even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol, the grave from beneath, is excited over you, king of Babylon. They are excited to meet you when you come. Sheol arouses for you. The spirits of the dead and all the leaders of the earth. Isn't that interesting that all the leaders of the earth are in Sheol? You don't see them coming from heaven to go. Okay, just make your own political comment at this point. <laughs> but it is interesting to me that the leaders of the earth end up 
aroused as spirits of the dead, the leaders of the earth. And it raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones, and they will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as one of us. And you have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps has all been brought down to Sheol, and maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and the worms are your covering. Up until then, we could say, okay, clearly Isaiah is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Suddenly in verse 12, it moves right past Nebuchadnezzar to Lucifer himself, who is inspiring that rebellious king in his rebellion against God in taking the people of Israel captive. God is still in control. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. That's the translation of the name Lucifer. So did God just refer to the king of Babylon as Lucifer? Yes. And not only that, this cannot be about the actual physical, literal human king of Babylon because it says how you have fallen from heaven. You were once among the angels. You were once the son of the morning. God, through Isaiah, is talking to the spirit that drove that king. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, and you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, here comes the pride. I know I keep harping on this, but the Bible keeps harping on it. Pride, that's the most often repeated sin in the Bible. And what is it that brought Satan down? His pride, because you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And I will make myself like the most high. That's what Lucifer said about himself. You think God's going to take kindly to that kind of boast? No, because the next thing God says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down into Sheol, into the recesses of the pit. You don't want to hear God saying that to you. Those who see you will gaze at you and they will ponder over you saying, Is this the man that made the earth tremble? Who shook nations? Who made the world like a wilderness and who overthrew its cities? Who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each one in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with a sword, who will go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. And you will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country and you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers not be mentioned ever more, forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. And they must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the earth with their own cities. Why is that significant? Because that's why we started with Babel. What was Babel all about? 
Nimrod built the city. They were all of one language. They were going to build a tower to heaven. And nothing they wanted to do in their rebellion against God could be stopped because they were all in cohesion with each other, which is why God confused them, why God scattered them across the planet, why God gave them various different languages. And so here, the king of Babylon, the descendant of Babel, the king of confusion is told that he must not, his descendants must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the whole earth and all of its cities because that's what they've been wanting to do ever since Babel. Should I mention the UN at this point or should we just keep going? (laughs) There is a very one world thing going on right now. There is a one world government in the works. There is a one world established religion going on right now. I don't know if you saw just a couple weeks ago, the Pope met with several of the Arab leaders and imams and agreed to what some people are calling um, Chrislam. One world religion, one world government. That's been happening ever since Babylon. That's my point. The whole point of all of this is to show you the influence that Babylon had historically on Israel and continues to have on the world to this very moment. Ezra 5.12 tells us, But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, that's why he gave the southern tribes Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Cyrus, by the way, is a Persian king who took over Babylon, just like God said, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the house of God and also the gold and the silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He brought them all from the temple in Babylon And these King Cyrus took from the temple in Babylon, and they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed to be governor. That was the decree that started the clock ticking that Daniel talked about in his 70 weeks. Are you getting some? I know these are huge swipes I'm taking. I know these are 70 league boots. I'm walking through the Old Testament this morning. But are you seeing how these pieces all fit together? Daniel's prophecy about the 70 times 7, the 490 years, starts with a decree that they're going to go back and reestablish Jerusalem and the city. That decree was finally implemented by Artaxerxes. And then even in, in the book of Psalms, we read Psalm 137, 8. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. Tom, if you would, look up Revelation 18, 2. Because the language of Isaiah 21.9 is identical to Revelation 18.2. I keep saying you can understand Revelation and you'll understand it better if you know your Old Testament. All Revelation is telling us is the culmination of things that have been predicted ever since Isaiah, ever since Jeremiah, ever since Daniel, reaching all the way back to Genesis. Are you amazed at your Bible yet? I mean, you really should be going, man, that's got to be the word of God. 
Because if I didn't worship the God of the Bible, I'd have to worship the men who figured out how to put this together. Because it's astounding. Isaiah 21.9 says, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Tom, Revelation 18.2. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Sound familiar? It should. I just read it for you out of Isaiah. And here in the book of Revelation, it's being established yet again. Babylon is fallen. Ezekiel speaks extensively about Babylon. Micah and Zechariah mention Babylon as a territory. The first chapter of Matthew in the genealogies, Babylon is used as a time stamp. 14 generations before the transport into Babylon, 14 generations after. Peter actually says that that's the territory that he's writing from. And he says that there's actually a church there. And he says he's in Babylon at the time. The Catholic Church would try to convince you that when he said Babylon, he was trying to avoid being found out by the Roman authorities, but that he was actually in Rome. There's no evidence that he was in Rome when he wrote that. He said he was writing from Babylon, which means during the first establishment of the church, Babylon still, though it didn't exist as a city, still existed as a territory, and Peter was able to identify this is the area of Babylon. Do you know what area I'm talking about when I say Babylon now? Mm-hmm. Talking about Iraq. That's the area of the world that was historic Babylon. But then in the book of Revelation, it goes past being a historic and political power to being a religious power referred to as Mystery Babylon. For instance, in Revelation 14.8, we already read that one of the angels, the second one, came and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Revelation 16.9, the great city was split in three parts and the cities of the nations fell and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Revelation 17.5, which we just read, on her forehead there was a name that was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. When we get to Revelation 18, Revelation 18.2, he cried out with a mighty voice saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It's what Tom just read to us. She has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a prison for every unclean and hateful bird. Revelation 18.10 says, standing at a distance because of their fear of her torment, they were saying, woe and woe to the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Revelation 18.21, then a strong angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be no longer. 
There. I just surveyed Babylon in the Bible for you. Next week, we will get to what Revelation has to say about Babylon and talk in more depth about the spiritual and religious. Not next week. Next week, we're having baptisms here. In two weeks, which means you are now required to remember every single thing I've said this morning. So I hope you were taking good notes. If you weren't, check with Leon. He was. But we're going to talk about Babylon. I'm going to close up this morning with a quote from John Wolverd because I think he sums it up better than I could. But here's the way that he describes Babylon's ongoing influence in the world and why it is mentioned so often in the Bible and why here at the end of the book of Revelation, at the day of the Lord, there are all these declarations of the destruction and the fall of Babylon. Walverd says, Babylon was important not only geopolitically, but also religiously. Nimrod, who founded Babylon in Genesis 10, 8 to 12, we read it this morning, had a wife known as Semiramis, who founded the secret religious rites of the Babylonian mysteries, according to accounts that are found outside of the Bible. Semiramis had a son with an alleged miraculous conception who was given the name Tammuz. And in effect, he was given a false fulfillment of the promise of the seed of the woman that was given to Eve in Genesis 3.15. Various religious practices were observed in connection with this false Babylonian religion, including recognition of the mother and child as God and of creating an order of virgins who became religious prostitutes. Tammuz, according to the tradition, was killed by a wild animal and then restored to life, a satanic anticipation and a counterfeit of Christ's resurrection. Scripture condemns this false religion repeatedly. In fact, you can read it in Jeremiah 7.18, in Jeremiah 44, in Jeremiah 25, and in Ezekiel 8, you see God repeatedly denouncing the religion of Tammuz, and yet it continues to this very day. That is the establishment of the worship of Baal, of Baal, and that's all related to the worship of Tammuz. After the Persians took over Babylon, in 539 BC, they discouraged the continuation of the mystery religions of Babylon. So subsequently, the Babylonian cultists moved to the city of Pergamum, or Pergamus, where one of the seven churches in Asia Minor was located. Crowns in the shape of fish heads were worn by the chief priests of the Babylonian cult to honor their fish god. Does that sound familiar? I know, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. I know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get mail. Sure. But it just, it's a fact. It's a fact of human history. When the Pope wears his red robe with the fins on the back of it and puts the fish hat on, he's dressing up like Dagon, the fish god, which is why Catholics eat fish on Friday. They're eating the flesh of their gods. That was not Wahlberg. That was just me throwing in something extra. Crowns in the shape of fish heads were worn by the chief priests of the Babylonian cult to honor their fish god. The crowns bore the words, keeper of the bridge. It was symbolic of the bridge between man and Satan. 
This handle was then adopted by the Roman emperors who used the Latin for that phrase, which is Pontifex Maximus. That is also the word from which we get the word pontiff. The Pope today is called the pontiff, and he's also the pontifex. When the teachers of the Babylonian mystery religions later moved from Pergamum to Rome, they were influential in paganizing Christianity. And they were the source of many so-called religious rites, which have crept into ritualistic churches. Babylon, then, is the symbol of apostasy and blasphemous situations of idol worship that replace the worship of God in Christ. So in the next two chapters of the book of Revelation, we're going to read that Babylon comes to its final judgment. And I hope you have some sense of why now. Got it? Got it. Much to my amazement, I packed it all in in one morning. Thank you for the extra 10 minutes right there at the end. Not that you had a choice, <laughs> but thank you for that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.